Welcome to episode 8 of Mac Bites. My name's Mike Thomas. And I'm Elaine Giles. And welcome to the first episode of 2008. We'd like to first of all wish you Happy New Year and uh, hope that Santa brought you everything that you wished for. Well, I don't know about Santa, but did your courier ever arrive with your MacBook for you? My courier did arrive, yeah, eventually. Uh, for those of you who uh, remember the last episode, we discussed the fact that I had no tracking number. Uh, Elaine, when she got hers, you got a tracking number and you were you were able to track your MacBook, uh, but I didn't. But it did arrive. Uh, it's a 2.2 gigahertz core duo. It's got two gig of RAM. It's got a 160 gig hard drive, and it's gorgeous. And it's all set up. I bet that took a while. It did take a while, yeah. I've uh, had to go through all the software that's on my desktop machine and try and replicate it as, as much as I can because I want to, to be able to use both machines as much as I can. Um, certainly taking the laptop to work is uh, one of the reasons that I got it, making all my colleagues jealous, which I think I have done already. Ah, oh, you can't beat it, can you? You certainly can't, no. Uh, one of the issues that I did have at the beginning was the DVD player. Not trouble in paradise, surely. Well, it makes a kind of grating sound oh. is the, the, the best way to describe it, whereas your MacBook Pro is, is silent. It is. Uh, it, it seemed to work okay. It was playing discs, it was recording discs, uh, and it wasn't scratching discs, but I just thought I'd take it over to the uh, the Apple Store, a local Apple Store. As you do, any excuse over Christmas for a visit. That's That's right. Well, you were going there for your one-to-one training, and uh, it's very rare that I get to accompany you. So I, I thought I'd pop along. Uh, booked myself a genius appointment at the same time as your one-to-one. And uh, within about 30 seconds, she told me, yeah, no problem at all. That's how it's supposed to sound. Uh, in fact, she even got a MacBook out and uh, showed me on there. So I was quite satisfied with that. It's, it's a different mechanism from what they've told me to the MacBook Pros. I'd have thought it could have had something to do with the size of the thing. My MacBook Pro is a 17-inch, so there's more room in there for um, it to absorb the sound. But I did hear the grinding noise, and I'd have been just as worried as you were. Well, everything's okay as it happens, so, so that's great. But whilst I was in the Apple Store, and I, I had an hour or so to myself, um, I, I stood there between two uh, iPhones, because they don't seem to have much else uh, on the, the displays apart from iPhones and, and iPod Touches. So I stood there and I thought, now nah, I'm not interested in these iPhones. What I really want to do is test out my uh, MacBook. So uh, what did I do? I dread to think. No, what I decided to do was to see if I could get back to my Mac working because I happened to have left my uh, desktop machine on at home so I tried it back to my Mac and uh, guess what? Go on! It actually works! Of course it did! Look who your network engineer is! Oh, that, that's quite true, that's quite true. Yeah, I had no problems at all getting it to work. Um, I, was, I was actually able to control my ITV which I had running um, at home and I was able to watch TV whilst in the Apple Store. <laughs> How sad is that? He's up there with sad, that. <laughs> the uh, only problem I had was that I was getting no sound coming through. Oh, well, that curtailed your entertainment somewhat. Yeah, I don't know if that's the way it works, or doesn't, as the case may be, but if anyone else has tried it, uh, please let us know. And I did then try to drag a huge file across, which was a, a bit of a mistake. <laughs> 
and I just got I just got to be eat small. So in the end, I I had to shut it down. But I did do a, a test with a very small text document, uh, saved it onto my uh, external hard drive, and then dragged it over to my laptop, and it worked. No problems. It was great. Yeah, I've transferred some files with back to my Mac, and it works brilliantly. Yeah, so I think that's a, a thumbs up for back to my Mac. Brilliant. Now, of course, as uh, as you may know from previous discussions, um, I do have to go over to the dark side occasionally. And uh, one of the reasons for installing, for, for purchasing this MacBook was to be able to install Vista and Office 2007 so that I can uh, get up to speed on it uh, at work. Oh, dear, dear me. You're admitting this in public? I am admitting it in public. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to talk about my uh, installation issues. What I decided to do was uh, use VMware Fusion rather than Parallels because uh, some people have said that VMware tends to run faster than Parallels for Vista. I haven't done a comparison. I'm, I'm going off some of the research that I've done. So what I did is I installed uh, Fusion, which uh, there were no issues on, on, on that in itself. And then I took an image that you'd already created of, uh, was it Windows 2000? No, it was Windows XP, wasn't it? Yeah, the disk we've got for Vista and needs to upgrade something, which is a bit of a pain when you're... Uh you're running it virtualized. So I took that, I installed that image, no problems, and then I started the upgrade to Fusion. And that's, uh, sorry, to, to Vista. And that's where my problems began. I was doing all right until about step five, and then I told it to use what was Drive C in Windows. Maybe you need to tell them what day you started, because I know that this took more than one day. When did I start? Christmas <laughs> Eve, probably. I thought it was the day before, but, you know, it was New Year before you'd done. Finished it on Boxing Day, I think. But uh, I, w I got partway through. I got to about step five of the installation process of Windows. And then when I'd chosen that I wanted to install it onto to Drive C, I got a message coming up that said, uh, Windows cannot be installed on this disk. Windows needs the driver for device VMware SCSI controller. L click load drivers and load the required device driver. So I did what it said. I clicked the link that said load driver and it went through a process and it kept coming up and it kept saying cannot find driver. And then it, it came up and it said, where is the driver? <laughs> the full horror and of this of course, is all coming back to me. The driver wasn't on, on drive C and, and it, it couldn't actually see the, the Mac desktop or the Mac hard drive. And... Uh, I tried to put it on a CD and I tried to put it on a pen drive and it, it wasn't having any of that. So I did a little bit of research and I found a web page and I'm going to put this on the show notes rather than reading it out to you because it's quite long and it's quite technical. But basically you have to go and download an FLP file which is a, a virtual floppy file. Uh, you put the driver onto this floppy file uh, and then you can actually go into the settings of VMware and effectively add a new floppy drive and once I'd done that and it took me a, a few attempts to, to, to get the whole thing working but once I'd done that we were up and running so now I have uh, a MacBook with 
Office 2007 and Vista running on it. I wonder if people who have a physical PC who uh, are trying to install Vista have it quite as easy when it comes to having a floppy drive because a lot of PCs aren't sold with a floppy drive today and obviously VMware you can create a virtual one but I'm sure it's not so easy with a real PC. Mm, that's quite true. Um, but that's not our concern. It's not. I was going to say, if anyone was interested, I'll ask around at work. But uh, as this is a predominantly a Mac podcast, I don't suppose anyone really will be interested. No, no, we'll just sit here and snigger at, at, at the idea. <laughs> yes, that's true. So it's all set up. You've had your visit to the dark side and you're quite happy. I am. I'm, I'm more than happy. And it's, it's sitting here next to me um, in purring away. Well, purring away in sleep mode. And I'm sure the stickers that came with it came in very handy for decorating your IBM ThinkPad. That's right. Yeah, I'm going to take those to work and uh, I'm going to put them on my ThinkPad. Ah, it's already got an inferiority complex. Mm. (laughs) Well, from what uh, you've just heard, I have actually taken a couple of weeks off work. And one of the great things about that is no Windows machines. What he means is he's had a Mac Love Fest for a fortnight. That's right. That's right. Um, so tell us, what have you been up to? Well, I've, I've learned lots of things, actually. Um, the first one uh, was something that you told me was a shortcut. Mm-hmm. Uh, command, Control and D to bring up the dictionary. Oh, yeah, that's a really cool one, that. doesn't yeah. work in every application, but, um, for instance, it does work nicely in Safari. But isn't there an issue with that? There is. You, you sent this through to me, and I, I got all excited about uh, this new shortcut, so I tried it, and it didn't work. Mm. And I tried it in another application, and it still didn't work. So, again, I got on Google, and it came up with um, what I think was the answer. Late 2007 MacBooks do not support this. No, very strange. Uh, you'd think a Mac's a Mac, it's running Leopard, mine's running Leopard, it works on mine, it doesn't work on yours. Uh, but there again, you did get a nice screen cloth with yours, and I didn't with mine, so I've got a nice working shortcut key. <laughs> that's true, that's true. And yes, that shortcut I... key is not to be confused with Command and Option and D, which does something totally different. It toggles the auto-hide on the dock. So it's Command and Control and D for a dictionary definition to come up in a little pop-up window in Safari and command option and D to toggle the auto hide on the dock. Yes, and just going back to your uh, your mention of that um, screen cleaner, it's a nice little cloth, it's about the size of our handkerchief and it's got an Apple logo on it as well. <laughs> it's not on that, mine, mine was a MacBook Pro, I should have had all these toys with it. Disgusting it is. To mind you, if you've got a 17-inch screen, you actually need a cleaner more than a 13-inch screen, don't you? I do. I need a bigger cloth. <laughs> you do. I shall be telling Stevie Boy. <laughs> yeah. So what else did you learn in your Mac Love Fest? What else did I learn? Uh, private browsing. That, oh, yeah, that's a good one. That would come in very handy when I wanted to... to um, do notice. Do notice, yes. That's mm. a good way of putting it. Yeah, in, in Safari, if you go to Safari and then you choose private browsing to turn it on, then any web pages are not added to the history. Um, any items that are downloaded are automatically removed from the downloads window. Information isn't saved for your autofill. And searches aren't added to the pop-up menu in the Google search box. That definitely sounds like doing notice to me. It does, and I'm not going to tell you why I turned it on. No, maybe we should have a competition for that. Yes. Hmm. And the thing to remember is, remember to turn it off when you finish doing the notices that you shouldn't be doing in the first place. Hmm. Otherwise, you won't be going back to the pages in your history. And you'll be wondering why. 
It's a nice feature that I like that too. It is. I turn that on when I'm at the Apple Store and I'm checking my mail and things. Mm. Something else I learned was about function key behaviour, particularly on the uh, the MacBook. You've got an FN button at the bottom left. And when you press the FN button with um, one of the function keys, then what it does is it applies the alternative behaviour to that function key. When you look at the function keys, a lot of them have got additional symbols. Um, for example, one of them has got next track, one of them has got previous track. Uh, they'll be for, for uh, iTunes, presumably. Um, but if you just press the function key on its own, then it just activates the appropriate function key, say F8, for example. So... Um, for example, if you press F8, it fires up spaces, whereas if you press this function in F8, then it activates the, the, the next track. So that's a, a useful uh, feature as well. I think when they're out of the box, it's set up where it performs the function that's painted on the key. And I think you've changed it so it it behaves as a function key unless you hold the FN key down. Um, on my MacBook Pro, I, I left that to be the volume and things like that until spaces and uh, then of course you needed a key to activate it although on my desktop I've set it up on the mouse to use the click wheel in the middle um, I don't have a mouse with me with a click wheel on so that was when I changed it so the function keys behaved as function keys and then if I want to change the volume or anything I hold the FN key down so it was spaces that uh, was the impetus for me to change that behavior Something else that uh, that we found that's that's really useful for the, uh, the the laptop is trackpad settings. If you actually go into the um, keyboard and mouse settings in your system preferences, there's an option which allows you to. It's a tick box, and if you turn it on, it's tap trackpad using two fingers for secondary click. Because if you haven't actually got a real mouse, if you're just relying on the the trackpad, um, you've got to hold the control key down to right click. So if you actually tap the trackpad with two fingers, and I tend to do it towards the, the top end where the keyboard is, then it activates the uh, right mouse click or the secondary click, which is a really useful or cool option. Yeah, I found there were lots more options in um, the trackpad settings in Leopard than there were in Tiger. Um, the, the no right click without holding control key down used to drive me mad. And another thing was, on my old laptop, I was used to being able to tap the trackpad once and it be the equivalent of a click. And I'm constantly doing it. I've had this over 12 months and I'm still trying to do it. And when I went in and looked at the settings in Leopard, there's a lot more in there. And that's another one of them that you can set it that when you tap it, it behaves as a left click. So if you've installed Leopard and you've not had a look at the trackpad options, go in and have a look. There's a lot more in there uh, and they're a lot more useful now. One of the problems that I had at some point um, during the holidays was um, something crashed. Uh, machine beach bold and i couldn't even click the apple menu at the top may i just draw your attention back to the word windows at that point would this have been when you were installing windows it wasn't actually no it was on my desktop oh dear <laughs> See, it was a mac thing it was that a mac did thing that. I, I don't know what it was but something crashed but i'm sure somebody helped you yes out. yes you did i wonder who that could have been that was you <laughs> yes um you you gave me a great new shortcut Command, Option and Escape uh, brings up the Force Quit dialog box and lets you then choose the, um, the product, the application that you want to um, force to quit. 
So it's the same as clicking the apple and then choosing force quit from the menu. But if you can't even click the apple uh, icon because you've, you've just got the spinning, spinning beach ball, then it's uh, a keyboard alternative, command, option and escape. Yeah, I'll admit that uh, that's happened to me a couple of times. Um, I was having a, a crash um, with Leopard, actually, uh, that I was trying to track down. And when it crashed, um, the menu disappeared completely. So I couldn't even see the apple. Never mind, click it and get to force quit. So um, when it was in one of its good moods, I had to check what the shortcut key was, which is command option escape, and uh, committed that to memory. And it does actually work, even though the menu had disappeared. And it's so useful is it that the other thing I use off that Apple menu uh, is the system preferences. I have a very minimal dock uh, and I access my system preferences from there. So what I did was I set up a global shortcut key, uh, command option and the section key. Uh, to show the system preferences and the reason that I went for that section key is it's the one underneath escape so in my mind you know the keys are next to each other so that you've got command option and escape and command option and section key for the two items that I use off that Apple menu so uh, that's a good global setting to um, put in there if you commit the first one to memory the second one comes easy yeah that's a useful uh, shortcut to remember now, something else that I was doing, obviously, was installing software. And as I was installing software and then wanting to eject the disk image, uh, one of the things you noticed as you were watching what I was doing was that I was closing a finder window down and then I was reopening it in order to um, then eject the disk image. And one of the things you told me was about the toolbar toggle, or lozenge as they call it. It's, it's the little um, lozenge-shaped um, icon at the uh, the top right um, of, of many of the screens and if you actually click that it will display uh, a list of the disk drives in, in a finder window and then it allows you to eject the uh, appropriate uh, image. Yeah, I think that what you were using was one of these uh, disk images that has a nice picture and a couple of big icons. So it lets you, it has like the application icon and a shortcut icon to your applications and you were just dragging and dropping That's the right. icon. It it looks as though there's no other functions available in that window. And I suppose you were in sort of Windows mode that in Windows, if you're installing something, then you have to close it down and then go to the Explorer. But the window is actually just a standard Finder window. And uh, that button that you mentioned toggles it, just toggles the view. So, um, yeah, I noticed that over your shoulder and so saved you a few clicks there. Yeah, I love shortcuts. <laughs> two more tips for you, two more things that uh, I've found, uh, is that if you open a finder window and then you hold the command key down and double click on any drive or folder, then it opens another finder window where the root is set or whatever you double clicked on. Mm. That's a good one. Say that again, slowly. Well, I was wanting to, uh, what I was wanting to do was copy or move some files from one folder to another, where the second folder, I think, was the parent of the first folder. So rather than just pressing Command and N, which I would open a second finder window, and then manually having to navigate, I could actually see the folder that I wanted to copy the files into. So I held the Command key down, and I double-clicked on the folder, and it opened a second finder window with the correct folder already displayed cool i shall try that one yeah that's a good one to try i've been using that a lot 
and finally, um, something that is not strictly holidays. Uh, I did it when I get, got back to work, and that's probably because I'm working on a Windows machine at the same time. And my, f Boo, my fingers are all over the place. Uh, <laughs> but if you press the control key down and at the same time um, the eject key on uh, a Mac keyboard, then it actually brings up the shutdown options. So, are you sure you want to shut down your computer now? Restart, sleep, cancel, or shut down? That's a good one to complement the uh, command and option ones that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Very nice. My holiday, yours seems full of good news. Mine had a little bit of a blip in it. Oh. Uh, yes, it was very sad. One of my favourite browsers is no longer with us as of February. Uh, Navigator. Navigator's demise. Um, I like Navigator. Um, it's... It's fast, it's got a clean interface, um, and it integrates with two of the utilities that I use when I'm browsing a lot. One password, which is great and, and does integrate with a lot of browsers, and also BookDog, which is a bookmark management utility. So um, I'm quite sad that Navigator's gone. Um, as anybody who, who listens regularly will know, I do have a fair collection of browsers, and uh, Navigator was one of my favourites. So uh, that's no longer with us, so I'm going to have to keep hold of the old one. And... Um, Use it until probably OS 11 doesn't support it anymore. Um, in the interim, I'm on the lookout for more browsers. So um, one that I'm next trying is iCab. So I'm sure I'll be talking about that in the future. But for now, cue Death March. Navigator's gone. So does that mean you're down to 16 browsers instead of 17? Yes, and do you know what the only... Um, well, I, I read this on the BBC News site. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. And um, the only bit of good news that they could come up with to counteract this really bad news was that IE8's out this year, Ooh. which wasn't good news to me. But there you go. As promised in the last episode, um, we're going to take a look at photo management, as I'm sure you'll have loads of photos from Christmas. So, Elaine, what did you use on Windows? Um, on Windows, I used PaintShop Pro. I used to love PaintShop Pro, um, particularly the early versions. I think I had it going back to version 2. And before that, I was an Amiga user, and I used... Uh, photo paint or fontum paint on um, the Amiga and it was very very similar to that I think in fact it came from the same code base and one of the good features in PaintShop Pro apart from the speed with which it loads was that it had an integrated file browser which loaded up thumbnails of the images and it cached those thumbnails in a sort of cache file within the folder that the images were in. So as long as I let it read all the images in first time I navigated to the folder, the next time I went back, be it today or tomorrow or whenever, um, it would load the images in, the thumbnails, instantaneously because they were cached. And I absolutely love that feature. So for photo management, um, I always cranked up PaintShop Pro and uh, did my work in there. Although when it came to editing photos, I didn't really do that much with PaintShop Pro. Um, I'm a Photoshop user, but this was in the days before Photoshop um, had the, well, what is now Bridge, but um, they added something that was similar to the file browser much, much later. But Photoshop, uh, PaintShop Pro had it first and it was great. It was just the later versions of PaintShop Pro that still had the feature, but they started adding features that I didn't really use. 
and it slowed the whole application down. But uh, for me, it was PaintShop Pro. So what about you? Yeah, I'll agree with you there. I used uh, PaintShop Pro. I love the Far Browser. In fact, I used it at work the other day on a Windows machine. Oh, there you go again, Windows. Well, I, I was looking at all the photographs that uh, my colleagues had taken at our Christmas do, but uh, I won't go... Oh, no, we don't want to go there. I won't go any further into that. But, uh, yeah, the file browser is great. Um, there were some other uh, useful features in there. You can delete files directly from there. You can rename files. You can copy files. And you can also resize the thumbnails um, just through the options in PaintShop Pro, which meant that you could actually see more pictures on the screen or you could see less pictures. But if you made the thumbnails bigger, then it's, it actually, in some cases, saved you opening the picture if you could, you could see the picture well enough. Yeah, I used to resize the thumbnails as well. I did tend, when I installed it, to sort of mentally come to an agreement with myself as to what size I wanted the thumbnails, because when you do resize the thumbnails, it has to read them all in again and remake the thumbnails. So a lot of my files were quite big, um, so I, I didn't want to be doing that often. But um, yeah, I think it works very, very well. A lot of my work is with um, screen captures that I've taken for manuals and instructional materials. So you do actually need to see the graphics because they probably got saved as image one, image two, image 79. So very, very useful that. What I did find was um, you can archive that. You can burn the images and the cache to a CD or DVD and it will, it will work offline if you will. You can take that CD and you can put it in another machine and if you open up PaintShop Pro on there it will read in the cached file that's on the CD. So that was pretty useful. But for long-term archiving um, I actually use Portfolio from Extensis which is uh, cross-platform. Uh, mainly as I say for archiving you, you can do a lot more with that in terms of keywords uh, and it makes websites and all sorts. It's probably um, overkill for most people. But uh, it was a nice little application. Um, I don't use it too much anymore. I kind of got left behind when I moved to a Mac. Because, of course, on a Mac there are lots of other things. And when I moved to a Mac, the first thing I had a look at was um, iPhoto. And I know I got a Mac uh, probably six or seven months before you. Uh, the one thing with iPhoto that I, I could never quite get my head around was the concept of rolls. Now, luckily with iPhoto 08, that's gone, and it's now events. But um, Which makes much more sense to me. It does to me, um, but I actually use iPhoto in a very strange way. I don't have my photographs in it. What I put in it are all my screenshots, because I keep my photographs in three other applications, and uh, iPhoto isn't really for me for photos. But I think you use it for photos, don't you? Uh, I was doing up until recently, and uh, I've now started using Bridge, which I think you're going to come on and talk about in, mm. in a while. Um, I was using iPhoto primarily because, because it was there. Um, and I didn't have Bridge, although you do get a copy of Bridge with Elements. And um, I found iPhoto was, was very, very good. Um, I didn't have it set up so it automatically loaded them in or imported them in when you stick your camera in because I wanted a bit more control. So what I would do is I would copy the stuff off um, the camera onto my, my hard drive or my external drive and then I'd manually just drag and drop them into uh, iPhoto. But um, I've, I found it a good application and I still do find it a good application for uh, organising your photos. 
and uh, it, it has very basic um, editing functionality um, although I, I don't use it for that I just use it for photo management I actually struggle with some of the photo editing stuff that's in there because I, I'm mentally attuned to Photoshop and if it doesn't sort of work in the same way I, I'm lost I must admit I also don't let um, iPhoto or anything else either read in things automatically from my cards um, I did have a problem with iPhoto it read in some stuff uh, automatically I think I, I hadn't actually turned it off and um, it seemed to upset the card the card got corrupted somehow I managed to get the photos off there but um, after that it's a, a manual process for me I don't have anything reading stuff off the card and then wanting to do things with it um, I do use Bridge which is also cross-platform the problem with Bridge is unless you do get and use the copy with elements um, it's the cost of it it's not a standalone application um, it comes as part of the suite now I use Adobe Master Collection which is um, a little on the expensive side I think it's around three thousand pounds it is virtually every product Adobe make so um, it comes with that for me the good thing with Bridge is that it handles raw files um, as if they were JPEGs um, iPhoto does manage to read my raw files, but I don't think it reads yours, does it? It doesn't, and that's another reason that I'm using Bridge, because I discovered after 12 months of, of having my Fuji uh, camera that it actually shoots in raw. So I've started shooting in raw, and, and that's why I'm using Bridge, so that I can uh, load in the, the raw images. May I mention the benefits of reading the manual at that point? 12 months you'd had it? Hmm. I told you I'm a point and press man. <laughs> Well, yeah, for raw images, um, Bridge is, is far better, a little bit faster as well. Something else I liked, I liked about Bridge was something that you showed me, where you can change the views and you can have your own views. Yeah, you can change the, the interface so you can have preferred views. If you're whizzing through your photos to um, weed out the, the ones you don't want, uh, you can have like a big preview of the image whereas if you're working with like lots of images you can have thumbnails and you can size the thumbnails bridge is a very very nice piece of kit um, it actually complements uh, lightroom which as i'm sure everybody who's heard one episode or more will know is the reason that i moved to a mac uh, and you'd imagine looking at them that there's a, a such a crossover that you'd use one or the other lightroom is very much a photographer's tool um, and it works great with raw images but there are still things that Bridge does that Lightroom doesn't. Bridge supports much many many more file formats so I can use that for my InDesign files, my Illustrator files and video files. You can preview video files in Bridge as well. So Bridge still has um, the edge over Lightroom for certain things. Um, Lightroom's cross-platform as well. I have tried it on Windows when it was in beta and uh, my problem with it was I only had a 15-inch monitor on, on the Windows machine and uh, it didn't leave much space for the photo by the time I'd got the interface on there. So um, I, I left that. And the other one, of course, is Aperture, which I've also got, which I also use. And I have it set up so my photos are on external drives and I can access them from either Lightroom or Aperture. I, I don't take the images and save them internally in the applications database I have them referred to externally on the external drives because Lightroom has some fantastic stuff for delivery you can make flash galleries and things like that and they are brilliant whereas Aperture has the ability to create these photo books that Apple will print for you so for me they, they are very similar applications some would say they actually do the same job but each has its sort of 
benefits in, in certain areas. So um, I use both of those as well. So all together now, I probably, I probably use four. I use iPhoto for my screen captures, um, Bridge for lots of files, and Lightroom and Aperture for photos. So that's how we manage our photos. Uh, but what can we do with them? Well, one of the things that you could do with them is you could make slideshows from them. And uh, what I'm going to talk about now is a couple of uh, software applications that allow you to create cool slideshows. The first one is Photomagico. It's a slideshow authoring tool and it goes far beyond the limited slideshow offerings of something like uh, iPhoto. It's made by Boinks and uh, that is B-O-I-N-X, boinks.com. And they're also the people that make iStopMotion. You may have heard of that application. I have indeed. Um, I've heard very good things about that, but I haven't actually tried it. But you know what people are thinking, don't you? What's that? Why do they need to buy this if they've already got iPhoto? Well, Photomagico does a lot more than iPhoto. Um, it does actually integrate with your iPhoto and Aperture libraries. So you can just uh, go into go into Photomagico uh, and you can choose your photos that you want to include in your slideshow um, and you can drag and drop your other images from any other folder as well. So you're not just limited to the stuff that's in iPhoto. If you wanted to make a slideshow from iPhoto then it's just what you've already got in iPhoto. The Aperture integration, by the way, is only in the Pro version. I'll talk more about the versions and the prices later on. It's also easy to rearrange the order. It's easy to delete images. Um, and it's got other other um, advantages as well. The Pro version, for example, you can uh, do non-destructive colour adjustment, which I don't think you can do in um, iPhoto. That sounds good. Can you add audio files as well? You can add audio files. Audio is optional. Um, but I, th I think adding a, an audio track is a, is a nice touch. So it means that as you're playing your slideshow, um, you've got uh, an audio, um, a, a piece of music. You can drag it from the iTunes library or you can just drag it from uh, a finder window. Are there multiple audio tracks? There's a single audio track, but you can have multiple audio files. So, for example, one that I did um, as an accompaniment to the photographs from our works Christmas do, if we can go there again. We're hearing about this again. Mm. <laughs> then um, there, were, there were that many photographs that um, the, the track, well, the audio track wasn't long enough. So what I did is I put two audio tracks on there, two, two audio files on the single audio track. You've also got timings and transitions. So you can say that you want these slides to be on screen for this number of seconds, so slide or picture one on screen for five seconds, picture two on screen for eight seconds. Uh, and you can apply these uh, timings to individual slides, to all, all the, the photos, uh, or just a, a selection of the photos. So you can have different timings for different uh, photos. And it's got some really cool transitions as well, uh, more than iPhoto's got. You've got things like fade, dissolve, twirl, cube. 
it's a bit hard to visualize this so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a little example together and uh, I'll make it available uh, as a link off the uh, the website off the show notes so you'll be able to download it and, and have a look for yourself but the, the cube one's quite effective it's like a, a rotating cube so as, as photo one changes to photo two for, for example um, you actually see a, a rotating cube and you can uh, apply durations to the transitions as well. So as well as, as, as timings to the actual photos, you can apply um, timings to the duration to, to, to the transition. So you, for example, we're going back to the cube one, you could say how slowly or how quickly that cube will twist around. It's also got one of the big features is something called pan and zoom, which is uh, similar to the Ken Burns effect that people may have heard of. Oh no, not Ken Burns. Tell me it does more than that. It certainly does do more than that. It's not just a, a Ken Burns effect where Ken Burns simply lets you um, kind of zoom in, zoom out. It, it does um, zoom in, it does zoom out. You can, you can twist around. You could actually have a photograph starting off screen and, and coming in and, and turning around and, and zooming right in to a particular part of the photograph at the end. It's it's really really clever. It's it's Ken Burns on steroids, as I like to call it. Oh, fair enough. Then. <laughs> With the audio, some of the audio features, you've got the the ability to change the volume. So if the audio track itself is a little bit too too low, you can change the volume, uh, which won't affect the original. It'll just affect it whilst you're playing it in your your presentation in your slideshow, or if you wanted to to reduce the volume you could do that you get some some nice effects and you can also apply markers within the slideshow and then have the photo change at a marker so that means that a photograph could actually change at a particular part of the the music track or the the audio track another feature that you've got is being able to match the duration of the slideshow to the audio track photo magico will automatically change the duration of the photos of the slides so that if you've got an audio track of say three minutes and you've got a hundred photographs then it will automatically adjust the durations of each photograph so that the, the whole slideshow is three minutes which i think is quite a clever feature Something else that you can do is that you can add blank slides. So you can add a title, a main title. You could add um, dividing slides. So if your um, your slideshow is made up of, of different sections, uh, it could be, for example, a wedding. It could be the the ceremony. It could be the reception. It could be the evening do. And you wanted to have a very long presentation because, as far as I know, there are no limits to the number of uh, photographs that you can have. Then you could have dividers and you could have text on those dividers. And you could uh, have the text overload overlaid onto photographs as well. And then uh, pan and zoom will also apply to this. Mm, when I've used Photomagico, I've had problems controlling the display of the text, actually. What sort of problems? 
Um, it doesn't seem very smooth and uh, there's been times when I've wanted to have like two text blocks, maybe one as like um, a caption and then another one fading in and I don't think you can do two, can you? You can't, no, you can, you can only have one text block per, um, per, per slide but the way around that would be to create a blank slide and, and put a graphic on it so create the graphic say in, in Photoshop and then add the graphic onto a blank slide Oh, where the graphics, the actual caption that I want. That's you know. right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. That's a good way around it. Now, Photomagico has also got some other useful features. Uh, it's got a watermarking feature, which is useful for branding, um, and that will appear on all of the slides. Again, that only applies to the pro version. And when it comes to sharing your presentation, it's now, the, the, there's a new version which is in beta at the moment, and this has now got about eight or ten different ways of sharing. Uh, for example, there's a, a standalone player. Oh, I've got to ask, does it work on Windows? It does not work on Windows, unfortunately, no. Oh, a great pity. So you can wrap up your slideshow and give it to somebody else to play on their machine if they haven't got Photomagico, as long as it's a Mac. Well, that works for me. That works for me, yes. Just doesn't work for my colleagues and the uh, Christmas do photographs. No, but they could always go and buy a Mac. That's true. You are trying manfully to convert all 65,000 employees, aren't you? I am. Well, there I you am. go then. No, don't have a Mac, don't see the Christmas do pictures. Mm, there's an incentive. Mm, or maybe not. Mm. Other ways that you could share are sticking it on a DVD. Uh, there's a new feature called a Web Movie, which produces a, an H.264 based QuickTime movie embedded in a web page, which is a, a nice feature. And it also has capabilities for exporting to iPod, iPhone, Apple TV, a screensaver. Oh, nice. But again, that's only Macs. Hmm. So you, you can't give it to your Windows friends and colleagues. You do realise this makes up for all the years when there was stuff on a Mac that I couldn't use. Get your own back time. Exactly. I'm so grown up. <laughs> Finally, um, the cost. There is a five-day trial. Good grief, you've got to be quick with that. You have, yes. Um, single licence costs £26, which I think is great value, and a family licence is £47. That gives you five licences, and that's for the standard version. Uh, the pro version is £68 or £132 for the five licences. Either way, I think it's fantastic value. I, th I think it's a great application. Jolly good. A second application that I looked at is something called Pulp Motion, and you can find that at pulpmotion.com. And it's quite similar to Photomagico. What you do is you actually start off by creating what they call a composition, which is a project, and you do it by selecting a theme. And there's about 25 or 30 themes that uh, that come with the application, and um, the, the company that make Pulp Motion are, are always building new themes, and you'll be able to download them off their website. You can actually change the theme as you go along, so you can change the theme at any time within your um, your project. And what the theme does is it provides styles, it provides layout settings, so it might give you backgrounds and, and things like that, or and a particular layout. There's four easy steps to creating your um, application, your, your slideshow. You create your project, 
you import your audio files and your photos and again you can import those photos from iPhoto library or drag and drop them from a finder window. Your um, audio can come from uh, I, uh, iTunes or again from a finder window. You change the settings, I'm going to talk about some of the settings in a few minutes and then you export. One of the things that Pulp Motion does have over um, Photomagico is that you can actually use videos, whereas Photomagico only uses still images. So if you've got a, a MOV file, you can actually bring that in and have that playing within the, uh, the slideshow. And you can also record directly from your eyesight camera. On your... Oh, scary. That, that is scary. I've tried it. That's quite scary. Um, it does have timings and it does have transitions, um, not as many as Photomagico. And one of the, the downsides that I found is that you're unable to change the transition or the timing for individual slides. It's, uh, it's all or nothing, really, whereas Photomagico um, allows you that flexibility. When it comes to publish and export, it does have very, very similar um, functionality and options. Um, the iPod, the Apple TV, iWeb, iDVD, you can create a screensaver, it has a standalone player and it's got um, the facility to, to create um, QuickTime files as well. And it includes conversion utilities to convert into AVI, MP4 and even YouTube. So it saves you using something else uh, to convert into a YouTube file. There is a recommendation of a, a maximum of 50 pictures. That's just one other thing to bear in mind. It's only a recommendation, mind you, so it will just come up and say, you've selected more than the recommended 50 pictures. Do you want to continue? And one of the nice features it had, which I didn't realise it was a feature at the time, uh, I thought there was, there was something not quite right with my photos, is that when you do a preview, you can actually choose whether to have low quality or high quality. So if you go for the low quality, um, it means that it'll, it'll generate the preview and, and render it faster. And then you, you go and you use the high quality when you do your final, final export. There is a trial version um, and the cost is $45 and that is from pulpmotion.com. So if you had to choose between Photomagico and Pulp Motion, which one would you go for? I would go for Photomagico. Um, I personally found it easier to work with. I found it more intuitive and uh, I just liked it better. Mm, jolly good. So that is uh, our look at uh, photo management and uh, applications for creating slideshows. Have we had any uh, feedback? Have we had any comments since our last episode? We have indeed. We've had um, Gazmas on the forum uh, with his iCal woes. Um, he had um, a requirement to be able to share one iCal calendar amongst um, different users on a single Mac. And when I, I mean, I don't have that need personally. My Mac's mine. Other people in the house have their own Macs. But when I thought about it, I thought actually that's really logical. It, you'd think that it could do that out of the box. And I'm pretty sure I read stuff about Leopard that promised that feature. And um, I had a look, and uh, other people felt the same, that they were sure they'd been promised that feature. But you can't do it without a server. Anyway, we uh, had a look round, and I know you found something that we couldn't get working. Um, but right. the answer to um, the problem was to use an application we've mentioned before called BusySync. 
Uh, now, BusySync lets you share calendars across a, a local area network. But this is just an individual machine. So the trick to making it work on an individual machine is to turn on fast user switching. So in effect, the other users are running in the background and um, it, they are synchronising as if there were four Macs in the house if, you, if you've got four users. And it works great. And apparently to do that, you only need a single licence. So it's very cost effective as well. So if anybody's got the need to add that feature that Apple really, really should have put there to start with, uh, have a look at BusySync. Thanks for that, and I believe you've got a screen capturing tip as well. Yes, we've talked about screen capturing before, and uh, the built-in features that the Mac has got to do that. And there's been a great post on the Macworld site from Rob Griffith about some extra features that he's found in the screen capture options, only available in Leopard, these, unfortunately. So if you've not upgraded, you won't be seeing them. But uh, I'm loving the new features. They're very useful. You can send to the clipboard and you can specify which area of the screen and all sorts. A little bit complicated to uh, verbalise, but I'll put a link into Rob's post in the show notes and uh, if you do have any need to do screen captures whip along and have a look at uh, his post because it's very very useful have you had a look at it yet i have yeah i had a look at it and it does look very useful i uh, i must admit i've not tried it but i've uh, mentally made a note of it and i will try it i will keep you to that and ask you how you get on <laughs> next next time Ooh, i better try it then you you better had I'd like to say hello to uh, Hugh and Tom, who uh, actually found the Mac user group, the Northwest Mac user group that we go to, via the MacBytes podcast. So hello to Hugh and Tom. Yeah, Tom was interested in finding a replacement for Visio. He's a new switcher and is a user of Visio. So has anybody got any suggestions? Um, I suggested OmniGraffle. Um, I love OmniGraffle after a very slow start. I'm afraid OmniGraffle for me wasn't instant love. It was more a slow burn of growing affection. But I did have the need before Christmas to uh, throw a diagram together. Uh, it was quite a complicated diagram and I thought, well, you know, OmniGraffle, I'm not booting up parallels to, to run Visio, I just can't face it. And I went into OmniGraffle and I hadn't used it extensively and I loved it. It really helped me get that diagram together very, very quick. So I would say OmniGraffle, but uh, Tom's still on the lookout. So if anybody's got any suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. And talking of the Mac user group, the next meeting is on January the 10th, Thursday, January the 10th. It's uh, at Grappen Hall Community Centre at eight o'clock uh, and it's Leopard we'll be discussing our experiences of installing Leopard, what we like and what we don't like. And you can find out more details on their website at www.nwmug.co.uk. And it would be good to see some of you there. It certainly would. So that's all for this episode of uh, MacBytes. On the next episode, we'll be looking at video editing and video management. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. See you next time. See you next time. Goodbye.